This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father John Ricardo talks about the dignity of the human person. Ordained in 1996, Father John Ricardo is the executive director of a nonprofit ministry, Acts 29, which works with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. And now, here's Father John Ricardo. Today we're going to talk about the human person. Coming on the heels of um, the recent election where we see all these different special interest groups who vie for their cause to be taken note of and oftentimes fund people in enormous amounts so that their needs can be addressed. Maybe the way to start this morning would be to say that the church too has a special interest. So the church's special interests aren't women or men or children or African Americans or minorities or immigrants or those who are out of work. The church's special interest is every single human person. That's the church's special interest without discrimination. Pope John Paul II, soon to be known as Pope John Paul the Great, back in 1968, he wrote a letter to a friend of his. Now remember, Carol Wojtyla, which was his name before he was elected as Pope, was born in Poland, lived through the Nazi occupation of Poland, the destruction of the people. We oftentimes forget that 12 million people die in the Holocaust, you know, not six. Six would be horrific enough. <laughs> it was just six million Jews, which is an attempt to eliminate all of Judaism from Europe, and not from the world. That was one of Hitler's plans, but... Hitler also had no love for the church and no love for Christians, anyone who would dare to oppose him, and the church opposed him fiercely. So amongst these other six million who were executed by the Nazi regime, there were uh, untold numbers of Catholics and Protestants who together sought to resist and to oppose all that he was doing with the truth. So Wojtyla lives through this. He studies in the seminary underground, and then the war ends, and all of a sudden you get the communist occupation. And as George Weigel, who wrote probably the greatest biography of Pope John Paul, it's called A Witness to Hope, he says that World War II is the war that Poland lost twice. Lost it first to the Nazis, it lost it second to the Soviets. And Wojtyla lives through both occupations and suffers greatly for it. He loses friends, family, towns, and he emerges from that with a profound experience of what it is that regimes can do to people. And he also emerged from that being a philosopher and a theologian as well, and someone very astute in history, with an insight which I think is very poignant for the day in which we're living. So in 1968, he writes to his friend Henri de Lubac, who was a, another Catholic priest, and Voitius said that in his mind, and I think he's right, not that I would question the Pope, but I think he's right, <laughs> the fundamental problem of modernity, the last couple hundred years, the fundamental problem of modernity is what he calls the degradation and indeed the pulverization of the uniqueness and the dignity of the human person. That's the fundamental problem, he thought. 
this is uh, something that we often miss as Americans. Uh, he saw that not only in oppressive regimes like Nazism and communism, he saw that with great potential in regimes like unbridled capitalism and hedonism and materialism. What happens in all of these isms is that the uniqueness of the person gets reduced to an object. And when a person is reduced to an object, we're no longer living like humans. There's a uh, gentleman, not from our country, but who teaches in our country. He's actually the chair of ethics at Princeton University. No small university and no small position to have. Who teaches that not all human beings are persons, and some persons are not human. He would advocate, this is the chair of ethics at Princeton University, he would advocate that parents should have the right to commit infanticide up to six, nine months after their child has been born if they don't seem to think that the child is fit to live. This guy's not on the fringe. He's the chair of ethics at Princeton University. He would argue that certain handicapped people, mentally and physically, don't fit certain criteria for being considered worthy of life and that they pose an undue burden on others and that there would be nothing wrong with eliminating them. Whereas certain animals, he, he would accuse us of being speciesist. That's his word. We give inordinate attention to human beings simply because they're human. But certain animals might in fact have, non-human animals might have far more rights than us and be worthy of far more protection than many of us. He's stated that the pro-abortion movement has made a fundamental mistake in recent years. Two premises and a conclusion. First premise, it's wrong to kill an innocent human life. Second premise, the unborn child in the womb is an innocent human life. Conclusion, therefore, it's wrong to kill the unborn human child. This man, as everybody has to acknowledge, says that for years the abortion movement tried to challenge the second premise, that the unborn child is human and alive. But you can't challenge that anymore, thanks to ultrasounds and biology and embryology. We know that the child growing in the womb is in fact a human child, and it's alive, and it's self-contained organism. It's got its own DNA structure. It's going to fully develop. It doesn't need anything other than nutrients and environment which is what you and I need, he says what we should do is challenge the first premise that it's wrong to kill innocent human life. This is the chair of ethics at Princeton. And his mentality, though it may not get stated as bold as that, rules in this land. This comes just out of a, uh, a medical procedure book written by a doctor named Martin Haskell, whose name might be familiar to some of us. It prescribes a simple 10-step procedure. Step one, the patient's cervix is dilated to 9 to 11 millimeters over a period of two days using Dilopan hydroscopic dilators. The patient remains at home during the dilation period. Step two, in the operating room, patients are given Valium. The Dilopan are removed and the cervix is scrubbed, anesthetized, and grasped with a tenoculum. Membranes are ruptured. Step three, the surgical assistant scans the fetus with ultrasound locating the lower extremities. Step four. Using a large forcep, the surgeon opens and closes its jaws to firmly grasp a lower extremity. The surgeon turns the fetus if necessary and pulls the extremity into the vagina. Step five. The surgeon uses his fingers to deliver the opposite lower extremity, then the torso, shoulders, and upper extremities. 
Step six, the skull lodges at the internal cervical os. Usually there is not enough dilation for it to pass through. The fetus is spine up. Step seven, a right-handed surgeon slides the fingers of his left hand along the back of the fetus and hooks the shoulders of the fetus with the index and ring fingers palm down. He slides the tip of his middle finger along the spine towards the skull while applying traction to the shoulder and lower extremities. The middle finger lifts and pushes the anterior cervical lip out of the way. Step eight. While maintaining this tension, the surgeon takes a pair of blunt curved scissors in the right hand. He advances the tip curved down along the spine and under his middle finger until he feels it contact the base of the skull under the tip of his middle finger. The surgeon forces the scissors into the base of the skull and spreads the scissors to enlarge the opening. Step nine, the surgeon removes the scissors and introduces a suction catheter into this hole and evacuates the skull contents. Step 10, with the catheter still in place, he applies traction to the fetus, removing it completely from the patient, and then removes the placenta. Our governor has vetoed a proposal that would make that illegal. That's a legal procedure in the country in which we live. Someone want to explain to me how such an incredibly barbaric procedure is legal? We have laws that say that it is unjust and illegal to kill an innocent human person. So we have laws that say that, and then we have laws that allow this. In the state of California, a law was passed in 1993, which makes it a crime, a double crime for a person to kill a pregnant woman. Person charged with two counts of murder, the woman and the life. And yet the life that is taken in abortion somehow is not considered to be murder. So if we have laws that say that it is illegal to kill an innocent human person, how is it possible that we have laws that allow for abortion? Anybody been to the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C.? Anybody a non-vet? Have you been to the wall? Can you describe it as a vet? I don't want to put you on the spot, but I've been there with vets, and I've just seen them break down and weep as they run their fingers over the names of friends. It's incredibly moving. 68,000 names, something close to that on the wall. Big strapping guys like Steve, you know, that I've been there with who fought in Nam. And if you've never been there, it's this long wall with names just etched on the wall. Very simple, but it's very haunting. And people walk up and you'll see mostly men, women too, but those who are in the war and they just fall to their knees and begin to weep as they trace the names of the guys who they saw die. If you make the same exact same monument for the victims of abortion. It would go from where it is in the mall in Washington, D.C. to Baltimore, which is almost 20 miles away, and almost back. 40-plus million names would be written on the wall. 1.2 million every year in our country alone that we know of. Who knows how many more are killed through contraceptives like the birth control pill, which is not only a drug which prevents conception, it prevents implantation, which therefore means it's an abortifacient. So how is it? Science 
and medicine, we've got a number of doctors here and nurses, science and medicine clearly tell us, despite what the media and politicians tell us, media and politicians usually point that as, that's a religious issue. And it's not a religious issue. This has nothing to do with religion. This has to do with science and medicine. Science and medicine tell you that's alive and it's human. So if it's alive and if it's human, how do we kill it? I don't mean that rhetorically. I mean, really, how do we kill it? How do we possibly legally justify that? Because we do. We legally justify that. How? We say that a woman has a right to choose, but that doesn't hold any water. We say that, you're right, and you know it doesn't hold any water, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, choice is ambivalent. You walk into a restaurant and hold your menu there, and the waiter comes to take your order, and he asks you, what would you choose, Dale? And you say, well, I choose. He'll look at you like you're a moron. I mean, choices have objects. What is it that you're choosing to do? So... We say it's not a viable life, although that becomes less and less true since now we're pretty soon we've got, if we don't already have artificial wombs and whatnot, which allow, we just gave birth, for crying out loud, to a one-pound child. <laughs> you know, we just, we just performed surgery on a one-pound child. She's doing fine. You, you don't get an awful lot smaller. I mean, you know, viability just... Viability is increasingly getting pushed backwards, and, and because of things like an artificial womb, it, it'll be a, a moot point pretty soon. We do deny something. What do we deny? What we deny the child in the womb is personhood. That's legally how we allow abortion. That's the issue. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident. Self-evident means obvious to... Everyone, huh? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, obviously they didn't mean that because they didn't mean you. And they didn't mean you. But at least the words were there. The understanding of them might not have been there, but the words were there. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with certain unalienable rights. Did I read that right? No? What did I skip? They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Not endowed by the state. Not endowed by a governor. Not endowed by an act of Congress. Not endowed by a referendum. They're endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. But among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If we do what we're doing right now, if we say that a child, whether it's the child in the womb or it's an embryo, is not in fact a person, then we've just violated the Constitution. Because the Constitution says that these rights are given by their creator. What we've done in the country is we have created an arbitrary scale as to who gets to live and who doesn't get to live. And we've done it by denying that all human beings are persons. According to the law, all human beings are not persons. Only some are, those who survive birth. Why do you think they keep the child's head in the cervix? Anybody here a nurse delivered any, a child? I mean, you've got a child outside the womb. What do you think the hands and legs are doing as the scissors are thrust into its head? It's moving. It's moving. It's grasping. It's violently reacting. Why do they keep the child's head in the cervix? Because it'd be infanticide if you took it out. We can't commit infanticide. Not yet. Some would say we already are. So they leave the child's head. There's no reason to leave the head there. 
They leave the head there simply so that they can be protected under the law, which is unjust, which says this is a legitimate procedure. So then, and I repeat this ad nauseum, I know, to some people, but to me it's the only way to contextualize this. First things, put first things first. We don't ask the right questions in the culture in which we're living. No wonder we don't get the right answers. The question is, is that a human being? If so, then you've got a simple either-or. Then it's either a person or it's not. Which we can say, either all human beings are either persons or only some are. If it's only some, and it's clearly in our country only some, according to what criteria would you determine that a human being is a person? We've got folks from Poland. There was a criteria used in Poland from 1939 to 1945. What if you were on the side that didn't get to meet the criteria? What if you're Bobby in 1818 in Mississippi? Who could possibly presume to take upon themselves the right to determine what the scale is upon which we grade a human being as to whether or not they are a person? What governor or president or legislative body would have the arrogance to think that they could come up with those criteria. And we say, well, viability is the criteria, huh? but it could be something absurd as to ethnicity, skin color, sex, religious preference, taste of music, beauty, usefulness, age. And if we don't think that either some or all of those have crept into the mentality of the culture of death that we live in, we're going to wake up one day and find that we have violently lost this battle. Our state right now, in the time in which we're living with as many economic problems as we're having, there's a number of people who are pushing for a solution to our state's economy is to bring in those who will do embryonic stem cell research because it will bring in technology and it will bring in money. Our governor's one of them. There will be a big debate in our state house very soon. In months, huh? certainly in 12 months' time, I would say, talking to some friends of mine in government, this issue will have gone before the house and will potentially have been lost, which means that we will make it law in the state of Michigan to allow for research on embryonic stem cells. What is the right question to ask about embryos? The right question is not to ask, what can we do with them? What kind of potential do they have? The right question to ask is, are they human? Because if they're human, we probably shouldn't rip them apart and use them as spare parts to help others. We don't do that any more than we would rip apart my father. If they're not human, then within reason, do whatever you want. But the question is, are they human? That's not a religious question. That's a medical question. That's a scientific question. Religion comes in to weigh in about why we think humans are of significance and talk about the fact that we hold this to be true, that God has become one of us, that he's created us in his image and likeness, that we're destined for eternal life with him. That's where religion comes in. But basic, intelligent, reasoning people of no faith whatsoever should be able to come to the same conclusion on this. I start with that just because... Seemingly every day, because of bioethical issues, what becomes possible to do to human beings is changing drastically. 
And if we don't have some moorings that we're tied up to, then we're just going to do whatever public opinion and majority says, according to the latest web poll that we've taken on whoever's website. What we need are people to think. We said at some point way back in the beginning when we started RCIA that one of the things I want to try to do with you is to get you to confront some things for all of us, for me to confront things too, always. Because we have a crisis in the culture, not simply of faith, we have a crisis in the culture of reason. We have an unthinking, critically, an uncritically thinking culture. We don't know what questions to ask. And it takes an extreme form in abortion, embryonic stem cell research, euthanasia. By the way, just so people are clear, one of the mistakes that's often made in the media is we can fail to be precise when we're talking about things. Stem cell research need not mean embryonic stem cell research. There's two very different things. The churches and a number of people of reasoned intelligence, which is what this document that I gave you is trying to put forth, the church is constantly trying to, because our special interest is every human person, trying to defend against and to encourage people to understand that embryonic stem cell research is probably not an intelligent thing to do or a reasonable thing to do. And it certainly goes against our Constitution, which says that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created with certain unalienable rights endowed by their creator. So the church speaks as she does on embryonic stem cell research. And in fact, all the rest of those, which don't destroy an embryo, have actually shown fruit. To my knowing, there is not one, not one cure that has come from the stem cell of an embryo. Embryonic stem cell research is decades away. We have Hollywood actors and different people and politicians making commercials and whatnot who are in sad states and whatnot, and we've got family members those people will never, ever be helped by embryonic stem cell research. They will die before any of this bears fruit, if we allow it. Meanwhile, we have potential and have actualized the capacity to use stem cells from so many other sources, umbilical cords, placenta, skin, a number of places that bear fruit now. There's such a movement to do this because of in vitro fertilization, which has frozen so many embryos. So now you have human beings who are on ice because of in vitro fertilization. That's one of the reasons why the church teaches that in vitro fertilization is contrary to human dignity because you should not, one, create life in a test tomb. It should be the result of love. Two, if you do have it, you shouldn't freeze it. Just so that we're clear, because the media often uses those two things interchangeably, and they're not interchangeable. Embryonic stem cell research is very different from stem cell research. There was somebody on TV last week, two weeks ago, I may have even mentioned this, she's the president of the National Atheist Association of America or some such thing. Her constant accusation was that people of faith are basically Luddites. They're anti-technology, they're against science. We're not against science! Good grief, what we're against is using people to be manipulated so that others can benefit from it. You don't do surgery on a patient that doesn't benefit the patient. That should make sense. That's what we're against. Not because of an emotional appeal, because we think we can lay out an argument which says why this should not be done. 
And the only argument that can come forth as to why it should be done is because we could do so much good from it. But it is never licit to do evil that good may come of it. That's a very basic moral principle. It comes right out of Romans, and it comes right out of our reason. It is never licit. It's never okay. It's never lawful to do evil so that good may come of it. We live in a country which doesn't understand that. And if you're going to do embryonic stem cell research, and we're going to do it, then you're going to do cloning, because that's how you're going to get more embryos. They're going to clone embryos simply for the purpose of taking their cells. You know, these things now aren't things that we're going to say, well, we're going to see this in our lifetime. It's happening now already, and we're going to see it just become the norm in this and so many other states by the time we wake up. It's just a given, unfortunately. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, computer, smartphone app, or Amazon Echo, we'll be right back with Father John Ricardo talking about the dignity of the human person. We're back on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. With Father John Ricardo. Moral relativism is precisely the issue Benedict talks about an awful lot. He calls it the dictatorship of relativism. I've got a couple of talks on our website that you can listen to. There's no question that truth, which is what we're talking about here. I mean, the question is, is it true that that's a human being? Is it true that that's a person? What we do is we make these decisions instead based on opinion polls, majority reports, personal beliefs. Like someone will say, well, I don't believe in abortion. Well, abortion isn't a matter of belief. What does that mean? No no one believes in abortion. I mean, the, the question is, what do you think about abortion? And that's where relativism comes in. And it comes in, unfortunately, because we haven't taught people how to think. And where that plays out, it doesn't play out in mathematical theorems. It plays out in issues that regard the dignity of the human person. That's why Wojtyla's comment, or Pope John Paul II's comment, is taking things like relativism and where those are being played out. That's why where you see things like relativism and you see bad things. I mean, actions are the result of ideas, We have bad actions because we have bad ideas. That's where relativism kicks in. Because we have bad ideas about the human person, we do bad things to the human person. But no one is seemingly, in positions of authority, equipped to tackle these issues. So the debate comes on, and no one will address it from a reasoned point of view. Was it the Wall Street Journal yesterday had the picture of the one guy who was getting shot in, was it Iran, 20 years ago or so? Vietnam, was it in Vietnam? Yeah, the famous picture in Vietnam. We have pictures every day of explosions and atrocities in Iraq. We have pictures every day in the newspaper, on TV, of the results of war. Have you ever once seen a picture in the media of an abortion? Ever. Have you ever wondered Why? They reinforce the bad idea. Exactly. The first thing is this issue. What is that? Who is that? And we don't want to answer that. That's where we're distorted. One of the things that I hope you see right away is that, and this is important when we talk about the moral issues in the church. We'll get into this a lot more when we talk about the commandments. 
the moral teaching of the church doesn't rest on faith. Again, you hear Catholics don't believe in birth control. That's an illogical sentence. Catholics don't think birth control is a good thing to do, you could say. But you can't say Catholics don't believe in birth control. Again, what does that mean? We don't believe it's out there? We don't think you can go down to the drugstore and buy a condom? You don't think you can pick up the morning after? I mean, so we talk carelessly all the time. And we want to be careful how we talk. So when the church teaches on matters of morality, the church is appealing to your intellect. We believe that you have a mind that you can think. We may not be able to think well, but we can think. And that if we use our minds, we can arrive at, through argumentation, truth. So in all that we do in moral teaching, now that's not to say that faith doesn't play into this in any way. It does. But it doesn't in the sense that these issues are not Catholic issues. These issues are human issues, which all people of goodwill and intelligence should be able to come to the same conclusions on. They're not sectarian issues. They're not Christian. They're not Catholic. They're not Protestant. They're not Muslim. They're human issues. And as we talk about the human person today and as we go into the moral life more after Christmas, it's important just to remember that. We are always going to ask the question, does this make sense? Is this reasonable? Do you understand? The church's teachings on morality are not arbitrary. That's incredibly important to grasp. In Islam, they're arbitrary. God is absolutely transcendent. It's his will. You are not to ask it. Even in some strains of Protestantism, God is like that. He decrees it. Who are you to ask? But as Catholics, we believe that the world has been created reasonably. Everything has been created through the word, through Christ. Therefore, all of creation shows forth something of the mystery of God, but all of creation can be understood somehow. I'm reading a great book right now called The Evidential Power of Beauty. would highly recommend it by a guy named Thomas Dubay. Dubay is a spiritual writer. He's a... Catholic priest, but it's the evidential power of beauty, truth and theology meet, I think is the name of it. He just goes through all these different things, beauty, whether it's in what he calls macro marvels, mini marvels, mini marvels, you know, whether it's in the stars and biology and music and paintings and all these places that we find beauty and saints and how beauty bespeaks truth, which bespeaks God. It's a wonderful book. He has this great passage in there. He's talking about Mozart, who I happen to love. Mozart's just this incredible genius, you know, who dies at the age of 36. And yet there's no sense that what Mozart did was left unfinished. And when he died, someone wrote, why is it that he would die so young? And Dubay quotes, I think he quotes somebody else. Maybe it's Dubay's thought. He says, the better question would really be to ask, how is it that Mozart even existed at all? Where did this come from? Who made this man? One of the examples he uses of how we're surrounded by these things that show us beauty, which leads us to truth, which is supposed to lead us to God. We want to use our reason over and over and over again in the moral life. Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 27 from Vatican II, says, Coming down to a practical and particularly urgent consequence, this council lays stress on reverence for man. 
reverence for man. We often talk about you walk into church and there doesn't seem to be a lot of reverence in the church. But you walk into the world, there doesn't seem to be a lot of reverence for man, the human person. Pornography industry makes more than ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, CNN, and every major sporting team combined. Combined. This is not like some, you know, fringe problem (laughs) that we're dealing with, for crying out loud. Every single technological advance on the Internet has been driven by pornography. Faster speed of data? Why do you think? Greater capacity to show images? Why do you think? Greater video capacity? Why do you think? If you've got small kids, don't even think of buying your kid a cell phone. Don't even think of it. Because whether you know it or not, now your phone can download images. Why do you think kids want camera phones? Because our culture is so profoundly rooted in despair, because we've lost sight of the dignity of the human person, because we've lost sight of God, you block out God and you block out what makes us unique. When God is eclipsed, the human person suffered in the image and likeness of God creates. When God is eclipsed, we just become animals. And if we're animals, then do whatever you want. And you maximize pleasure and you minimize pain. I live that way. It's a great way to live. It's the only way to live if there's no point to life. What else would you live for? This is a huge, huge crisis that we face. I think it was Bill O'Reilly. He had a show a couple years ago now. and The whole thing was on lust. And the title of the show was, What's Wrong with a Little Lust? What's wrong with a little lust? Everybody, everybody has lust. What's wrong with a little lust? Come on. I'm not hurting anybody. Am I? Am I hurting anybody? Who am I hurting? Me. Why? Explain that reasonably. Why am I hurting myself when I succumb to lust? How do I explain it reasonably to the culture in which I'm living? What's wrong with a little lust? Because the president of the National Atheist Association of America could give a flip about the temple. Right? Little turns into a lot. So what? What if I want a lot? Okay, become obsessed, lose the perspective on life. We've certainly seen that in marriages. Okay, so I reduce somebody. I'm, I'm adopting a mentality that is now beginning to think of other people as things. Simply put, what sociologists show is it leads to addiction. We have widespread addictions of all kinds. But think of it this way. Let's look at this last paragraph in what I gave you. Furthermore, whatever is opposed to life itself such as any type of murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, or willful self-destruction, whatever violates the integrity of the human person, such as mutilation, torments inflicted on body or mind, attempts to coerce the will itself, whatever insults human dignity, such as subhuman living conditions, arbitrary imprisonment, deportation, slavery, prostitution, the selling of women and children, as well as disgraceful working conditions where men are treated as mere tools for profit rather than as free and responsible persons. All these things and others of their like are infamies. Infamies indeed. They poison human society, but they do more harm to those who practice them than those who suffer from the injury. That's a key line. They do more harm now play that out to the extreme, just so we can see what the church is really saying. So, I killed Joanne. According to what the church says, I have done more harm to me than I have to you. 
How can that be? You're dead. I think the best way I've heard it is there's such a thing as what's known as the transformative nature of the good or of the bad. One of the fathers of the church wrote it this way. He says, it's fair to say that we are, in a real sense, our own parents. That morally speaking, we give birth to ourselves. We give birth to ourselves because the actions that we freely choose to do in life make us to be who we are. So in choosing to kill Joanne, while you have suffered death, which is no great thing, I have made myself to be a murderer, which is a worse thing than to be the victim of a murderer, because I have now formed my whole life, at that moment anyway, by that act. Thanks be to God, one of the choices we can do is to repent which can make us to be a repentant man or woman, which can bring us back home. Peace with not only the Lord, but at peace with ourselves. Psychiatrists and psychologists both are telling us over and over again that we are in a big problem right now because we refuse to acknowledge guilt. You want to be healthy? Repent. You want to be healthy? Go to confession. That'll make you healthy. Deny the blame, deny accountability, deny responsibility, and we'll get sick. We'll become neurotic, and we'll become trapped in our minds. So the church is teaching here in this last paragraph in Gaudium et Spes and in all that we're looking at with these other things, means to tell us this truth, that there is this thing called the transformative nature of the good, that what we do, what's wrong with a little lust? It makes me to be a lustful man, which is not a good thing. Why is it not a good thing? Because it's not good for me or for the culture in which I live to be the kind of man who uses people as things. Now, you say something like that, and then you realize, okay, we live in this highly over-sexualized culture. So people struggle with lots of things here and in the church and in the world. So if we struggle, we keep struggling, huh? I mean, we don't want to walk out of here feeling like all we are are objectifiers. I mean, people fall into sin. That's what we do. We're, We're unfortunately not only fallen, we are prone to fall. We stumble. We walk with a weakness and a limp. So we we all have battles in life. But it's important to realize uh, why these things are so dangerous. Because they will erode the fabric of the society that we live in. We can't live in a community where we treat people like objects. We can't live in a community where we reduce people to spare parts. We can't live in a community where we think only some people make the grade. That's not a community. That's a tyranny. And it's a tyranny of the majority, according to what we signed up on the web poll. One of the most simple thoughts I have about heaven that continually floors me is that in heaven, none of the doors will have locks. And the homes probably don't even have doors. Because I don't need them. I don't need to keep anybody out. Because I'm not afraid of anybody. Can you imagine living in a culture or in a community where you didn't have to lock your car? let alone take the keys out. Can you imagine what that would be like? What that would do for the way we would live? Can you imagine our relations with each other? 
and just the ease of friendship and interacting with one another, if we didn't have the fear that we have, wouldn't that be incredible? Won't that be incredible? Because it's real. That is heaven. It's an element of heaven. That's just a small element of heaven. And what a profound impact psychologically that would make on every single human being if we didn't live with that basic fear which plagues so many of us. Got my nice car. I got to park it way in the corner, way over there underneath the lights next to the dumpster so no one else parks next to me because I don't want them to scratch it. You don't have to worry about that. You wouldn't even care about buying a nice car. Let me give you some paragraphs from the Catechism. You can look at these on your own. I'll read a couple of them quickly. Paragraph 27. The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God. And God never ceases to draw man to himself. Thus, the dignity of the human person. Man is created by God and for God. What's the destiny of every human person again? What is it that we are awaiting? To partake in the divine nature. That's the destiny of every single human person from the moment they come into existence. Alan Keyes, some of us probably heard Alan Keyes speak before. He's a passionate defender of life. He was on a debate with somebody on TV one time and talking about abortion and when human life begins. And the person says, ah, you probably think human life begins at conception, which isn't a matter of belief, it's a matter of thinking. But Keyes looks at him, and Keyes is a very devout Christian. He says, no, I don't believe that. He says, I believe that human life begins long before conception. Because God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Life begins long before conception. We are created by God and for God to partake in his own abundant life. And only in God will he find the truth and the happiness that he never stops searching for. There's a great uh, Christian contemporary band called Casting Crowns. They have a song called The American Dream. It's uh, something that for guys in particular, I might encourage you to download, but for all of us, uh, it's about this typical man who's could be a woman too, who's caught up in the culture in which we live, the pace of the society in which we live, and is striving for all these things in life. Huh? You know, better car, more money, bigger house. Along the way, he doesn't have time for his kids who want to play with him. doesn't have time for his wife who's home or her husband who's home. And he's building his castle on sand, is the refrain used over and over again and the song. At the very end, after his castle comes crashing to the ground, there's just this faint voice that's heard over and over again that says, all he really wanted was you, God. All he really wanted was you. Because we are searching for happiness. And happiness is found in the Lord and in living as we should, not in the accumulation of things. The dignity of man rests above all, this is still paragraph 27, on the fact that he is called to communion with God. C.S. Lewis in uh, one of his essays, um, The Weight of Glory, says, you have never met a mere mortal. You've never met a mere mortal. Outside of the Blessed Sacrament, he says, Lewis was an Anglican, he believed in the real presence. Outside of the Blessed Sacrament, the holiest object ever presented to your senses is another human being. Any human being is the holiest object 
ever presented to your senses outside of the Eucharist. Because we are called to communion with God. This invitation to converse with God is addressed to man as soon as he comes into being. For if man exists, it is because God has created him through love. And through love continues to hold him in existence. As well, you might want to look at paragraphs 355 to 359, and then 1700 to 1703. So 355 to 359, 1700 to 1703. As regards matters of what we call social justice, justice is that virtue which gives to someone what they are due. That's the virtue of justice. Paragraphs 1929 to 1935 are worth looking at. And in the Catechism on things like abortion and embryonic stem cell, we could look at uh, paragraph 2270 to 2275. And then euthanasia is 2276 to 2279. Issues of war and peace, the necessity to try to avoid war, and this idea of a just cause to go to war, which is part of the church's teaching, are paragraphs 2302 to 2317. 2302 to 2317. Issue of suicide, huh? which is a reality in my family. I've lost a brother-in-law and an uncle to it. I know lots of us have lost loved ones and friends to suicide. Catechism treats suicide in paragraphs 2280 to 83. Obviously, to take your life is a grave offense. I'm created in the image and likeness of God. It's not mine to take. I've taken it. But clearly, somebody who takes their life is not of right mind. One family member hung himself above a statue of the sacred heart on the eve of all saints with a note left from my sister which said, in part, Jesus, I'm tired of fighting because he was addicted to crack. Pray for him almost every day. I have to trust that Russ is home. This man was not free. In order for mortal sin to be committed, it has to be grave matter, full knowledge, sufficient reflection. I have to freely do what I do. I don't think people who take their lives are free. Ultimately, only God knows that. We don't know that, but it's important for us as we talk about these things and to understand how, how real the church's teaching is on these things, that we simply don't know And one of the things that I've become more and more convinced of as a priest is how incredibly fragile every single human being is. We all look so normal sitting here. Most of us. (laughs) Some of us. A couple of us. The babies. (laughs) But we're all really carrying an awful lot of baggage. And we don't let others in to see it, which is kind of smart, you know. But you see that as a priest because we have access to so many people's insides, you know. We're so fragile, and the Lord knows that. He knows all that we carry. He's abounding in mercy and compassion. People make the mistake sometimes of then saying, well, then all these things must go. These all must be okay. And the church holds both. No, certain things are really good, certain things are really wrong, but we understand why certain people do really wrong things. We can say both that was really wrong, and yet I don't know why it is that you would do that. So we judge, we judge objectively what people do, but I can never judge why someone did it, because I don't have access to any person. No one here has access to any person's heart. That's what tempers our judgment. When Jesus says, do not judge, he doesn't mean don't judge actions. We're commanded to judge actions. He tells us you judge a tree by its fruit. That's a judgment. 
What I can't judge is why the tree bore such rotten fruit. I don't know that. Maybe it had terrible roots. Maybe no one watered it. Maybe it was a victim of whatever. Maybe we can end with uh, just a reading from Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at the left. This is a real day that's going to happen. This isn't a story or beautiful poetry. This is going to happen. We're going to see the king, and we're going to be separated. Please, God, we won't be separated. And the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, Father, we ask for the grace today to not miss you or to miss your Son who comes to us in so many different forms and in so many distressing disguises. Father, help us to recognize the dignity of every human person. Help us to grow in charity. Give us freedom from those things that inhibit us or prevent us or make us uh, incapacitated in any way from recognizing and seeing Jesus. Forgive us for the times that we have missed him in the past. Help us not to miss him in the present, so as to be ready for the day when he will come in the future. And all these things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, computer, smartphone app, or on Amazon Echo, we appreciate you tuning in to this week's Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. If you would like to comment on today's show or have an idea for a future show, please go to dvmercy.com and click on the Double-Edged Sword icon. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 88.1 KVDM Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Band, and very soon 101.7 KJDM Salina. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.